Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Be sure to check out Morbidly Beautiful right now for all your horror pop culture needs from interviews, reviews, top 10 lists, and well, everything in between. Today we're going to continue our look at the terrible piece of shit known as Robert William Willie Picton, a Canadian serial killer who was accused of killing 26 women, boasted about killing 49, and was convicted of killing 6. Yes, only 6 of 26 possible victims he was tied to. But that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to Mr. Picton. He was a strange man. And we're going to do a recap just after this. This is the follow-up to Robert Picton. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. So in case you did miss last week's episode, for whatever reason, I mean, you could just go back and listen to it. But if you don't want to, totally get it. Totally understand. I'll give you a quick rundown of what happened with Robert Picton and the story of him before we get into the murders, the trial, and of course the aftermath of what this asshole did. Little Willie Picton was born on October 24th, 1949, to parents Leonard and Louise Picton. They were a family of pig farmers in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, about 27 kilometers or 17 miles from my American friends, east of Vancouver. He had an older sister named Linda, and she was sent to live with relatives in Vancouver as the parents thought the family pig farm would be an inappropriate place to raise a young lady. Robert, or Willie as I just referred to him as, which was a nickname given to him because his middle name is William, and his brother worked on a pig farm from a very, very early age. Louise, the mother, was very demanding, prioritizing the pigs over the brother's personal hygiene and forced them to work long hours raising the farm's livestock. She was the type of mom that really didn't care about her kids and would send them to school unwashed, in dirty clothes, and reeking of pig shit. Yeah. Yeah, nice mom. This lack of personal hygiene did give the brothers the nickname in school, Stinky Piggies. Kids can be so cruel, yet so clever. It's weird. Despite the mother's treatment of the boys, Robert had a strong attachment to his mother and had little interaction with his abusive father. It's kind of interesting how almost every serial killer on the planet has mommy or daddy issues, usually mommy, if they're male anyway. Interesting, right? Something to look into. That's a whole nother podcast all in and of itself. I don't want to touch on that because we could be here for days. When Rob was in his early teens, he used his life savings, however much that could be when you're a teen, to buy a calf, which became his beloved pet. Now, you know what always happens with pets and serial killers, right? They don't usually last very long, either by their own hand or by somebody else's, which is a trigger, which causes them to go, oh shit, I'm going to start killing people now. One day after failing to find it after school, he was told by his mom to check the barn, where he was heartbroken to find it slaughtered, clearly on purpose. His mom was a terrible person, and it's easy to blame her for what he became because she is probably pretty responsible. Now, there's a whole nature versus nurture argument, and I am in a firm stance that it is a mixture of both. Not everybody with a terrible mother grows up to be a serial killer, and not every serial killer has a terrible mother. 
but usually a perfect storm bruise and one in the other match and the tendencies are brought to the surface that were already laden within because of a terrible relationship with the parent or mother in general. Now, after this event, Picton dropped out of school, and that was in 1963. He was 14 years old. He became a butcher's apprentice after that, and in 1970, he left his apprenticeship to work full-time at the family farm. His good old dad died in 1978, and his mom died the following year, leaving the farm to Picton and his two siblings. Linda and David wanted nothing to do with the farm, David took over the house and Willie began running the farm on his own, living in a remote area of the property on a trailer. Now that's just kind of a rumor, and there's some eyewitness reports about that, but I mean, let's just stick with it because it fits the whole serial killer Texas Chainsaw thing. So we're going to stick with he lived on a remote part of the farm in a dumpy trailer. All right, so now let's get to the murders themselves and some of the victims and what happened. We touched on it last week, but we didn't go into a great deal of detail. We just sort of stuck with the basics, as that was kind of the precursor to the big episode, which is this one. There was a worker on the farm by the name of Bill Hiscox, and he called the farm a creepy-looking place and described Picton as a pretty quiet guy, whose occasional bizarre behavior, despite no evidence of substance abuse, would draw attention. In other words, people thought he was either a druggie or a drunk. The Picton brothers began to neglect the site's farming operations. They registered a non-for-profit charity, the Piggy Palace Good Times Society, with the Canadian government in 1996, claiming to organize, coordinate, manage, and operate special events, functions, dances, shows, and exhibitions on behalf of service organizations, sports organizations, and other worthy groups. If that's not a run-on sentence, I don't know what is. I had to take like four breaths during that. Its events included Ray's Wild Parties featuring Vancouver's sex workers, which is kind of foreshadowing what's going to happen, and gatherings in a converted slaughterhouse on the farm at 953 Dominion Avenue in Port Coquitlam. These events attracted as many as 2,000 people, and many of those people were from the Hell's Angels. So that's the type of place this turned into. On March 23, 1997, Picton was charged with the attempted murder of sex worker Wendy Lynn Eistetter, whom he stabbed several times during an altercation on the farm. Eistetter had informed police that Picton had handcuffed her, but that she had escaped after suffering several lacerations. She told him that she had disarmed him and stabbed him with his own weapon. And as we know from last week's episode, they fought, they stabbed each other, they both went to the same hospital, and the police went, nah, she's a druggie. He didn't do this. She probably did it to herself because we're super smart cops and we know everything. Well, that was wrong. This actually happened and he was just let go. So yeah. A few months later, however, the Pictons were sued by Port Coquitlam officials for violating zoning ordinances. Neglecting the agriculture for which it had been zoned and having altered a large farm building on the land for the purposes of holding dances, concerts, and other recreations. So despite them registering a non-for-profit business thing, they didn't actually change the zoning rights, so they got in trouble. The Piggy Palace Good Time Society's non-profit status was removed the following year, and that was because they couldn't really produce any financial statements on anything because they're 
dumbass hicks who like to kill people. Well, one of them anyway. The Good Time Society was disbanded. Over the next three years, Hiscox noticed that women who visited the farm eventually went missing. On February 6th, 2002, police executed a search warrant for illegal firearms at the property. Robert and David Picton were arrested and police obtained a second warrant using what they had seen on the property to search the farm as part of the BC Women's Missing Investigation. Personal items belonging to missing women were found at the farm, which was sealed off by members of the joint RCMP Vancouver Police Department Task Force. The following day, Picton was charged with weapons offenses, and both of the Pictons were later released, because naturally. However, Robert Picton was kept under police surveillance. Finally, on February 22nd, Robert Picton was arrested and charged with two counts of first-degree murder in the deaths of Serena Abbotsway and Mona Wilson. On April 2nd, three more charges were added to the murders of Jacqueline McDonnell, Diane Rock, and Heather Bottomley. A sixth charge for murder was added, and that was for the murder of Andrea Josbury, and that was laid on April 9th. This was followed shortly by a seventh for Brenda Wolfe. On September 20th, four more charges were added for the slayings of Georgina Pappin, Patricia Johnson, Helen Hallmark, and Jennifer Furminger. Four more charges for the murders of Heather Chinook, Tanya Holick, Sherry Irving, and Inga Hall were laid on October 3rd, bringing the total to 15. This was the largest investigation of any serial killer in Canadian history. On May 26, 2005, 12 more charges were laid against Picton for the killings of Kara Ellis, Andrea Borhaven, Deborah Lynn Jones, Marnie Frey, Tiffany Drew, Carrie Kosky, Sarah DeVries, Cynthia Felix, Angela Jardine, Wendy Crawford, Diana Melnick, and Jane Doe. This brought the total of first-degree murder charges to 27. Excavations at the farm continued through November 2003, and the cost of the investigation, as I mentioned last week, was $70 million Canadian. That's a lot of money to investigate one person. As of 2015, the property is fenced off under lien by the Crown in right of British Columbia. In the meantime, the buildings on the property, except a small barn, have been demolished. In the end, forensic analysis proved difficult because the bodies may have been left to decompose, eaten by insects, or even the pigs on the farm. During the early days of the excavations, forensic anthropologists brought in heavy equipment, including two 50-foot flat conveyor belts and soil sifters to find traces of human remains. On March 10, 2004, the government revealed that Picton may have ground up human flesh and mixed it with pork that he sold to the public. The province's health authorities later issued a warning. Another claim was that he fed the bodies directly to the pigs, which he then sold to butcher shops and other people after digesting human flesh. This was a sick, sick motherfucker. Another rumor I heard around this time was that during some of his infamous parties, he would serve pork, but it wasn't all pork. He was giving human meat of his victims to his friends. It's fucked up. A preliminary inquiry was held in 2003, the testimony from which was covered by a publication ban until 2010. At the inquiry, the facts were revealed that Picton had been charged with attempted murder in connection with the stabbing of sex worker Wendy Lynn Eistetter in 1997. Eistetter had testified that 
after picking a picture up and driven her to the Port Coquitlam farm, had sex with her, and slapped a handcuff on her left hand and stabbed her in the abdomen. She then in turn stabbed Picton in defense. We know where this went. The attempted murder charge, as we know, was stayed, and because she was a drug addict, nobody believed her. In 1998, according to the Vancouver Police Detective Constable Lorimer Scherner, she described a call made to the public tip line stating that Picton should be investigated in the case of women's disappearances. According to Scherner's account, described at length in his 2015 book about the case, he struggled to attract significant police resources and attention to the case until 2002, which was the search of Picton's farm by the RCMP. In 1999, Canadian police had received a tip that Picton had a freezer filled with human flesh on his farm. Although they interviewed Picton, who denied killing anybody and obtained his consent to search the farm, police really didn't do anything after that point. He said, go check my human meat-filled freezer, and they went, nah, you're a good guy. In case you haven't noticed, the disdain I have for the police in this investigation is palpable. They pissed me off. There's nothing else to really say about that. On to the trial, which began on January 30th, 2006 in New Westminster, BC. Picton pleaded not guilty to 27 charges because, of course, the initial jurying phase took a lot of time to conduct. Took most of the year, in fact. And they used that time to determine what evidence might be admitted before the jury. Reporters were not allowed to disclose any of the material presented in the arguments. On March 2nd, one of the 27 counts was rejected by Justice James William for lack of evidence. On August 9th, Justice Williams served the charges, splitting them into one group of six counts and another group of 20. The trial proceeded on the group of six counts. The remaining 20 could have been heard in a separate trial, but ultimately were stayed on August 4th, 2010. Because of the publication ban, full details of the decisions are not publicly available. But the judge has explained that trying all 26 charges at once would put an unreasonable burden on the jury, as this trial could last up to two years. It also would have increased the chance for a mistrial. The judge added that six counts he chose had materially different evidence from the other 20. Office of the Inspector General Senior Investigator R.J. McDougald was case agent for the investigation. The date for the jury trial of the first six counts was initially set to start January 8th, 2007, but was later postponed to January 22nd. On that date, Picton faced first-degree murder charges in the deaths of Frey, Abbotsway, Papin, Josbury, Wolf, and Wilson. The media ban was eventually lifted, and for the first time, Canadians heard the details of what was found during the investigation. Now, this might be a bit of a trigger warning because it gets kind of gross. So what they found were skulls cut in half with hands and feet stuffed inside, the remains of one victim found stuffed in a garbage bag, and her blood-stained clothing found in Picton's trailer, another part of the victim's jawbone and teeth found beside Picton's slaughterhouse, and a 22 caliber revolver with an attached dildo containing both his and a victim's DNA. In a videotaped recording played for the jury, Picton claimed to have attached the dildo to his weapon as a makeshift silencer. I don't want to know where he shot that gun. That is some seven vibes right there. As of February 20th, 2007, the following information had been presented to the court. During Picton's trial, lab staff testified 
that about 80 unidentified DNA profiles, roughly half male and half female, have been detected on evidence. The items found inside Picton's trailer included a loaded 22 revolver with a dildo over the barrel and one round fired, which is terrifying, a box of 375 Magnum handgun ammunition, night vision goggles, two pairs of faux fur-lined handcuffs, a syringe with three millimeters of blue liquid inside, and Spanish fly aphrodisiac. A videotape of Picton's friend Scott Chubb saying Picton had told him a good way to kill a female heroin addict was to inject her with windshield washer fluid, hence the blue liquid found inside of a syringe. A second tape was played for Picton in which an associate named Andrew Bellwood said Picton mentioned killing sex workers by handcuffing and strangling them, then bleeding and gutting them before feeding them to pigs. Yeah. Photos of contents of a garbage can found in Picton's slaughterhouse, which held some remains of Mona Wilson. In October of 2007, a juror was accused of having made up her mind already that Picton was innocent. Some fucking how. The trial judge questioned the juror, saying, It's reported to me that you said, from what you've seen, you were certain Mr. Picton was innocent. There was no way he could have done this. That the court had arrested the wrong guy. The juror denied this completely. Justice Williams ruled that she could remain on the jury since it had not been proven that she'd made the statements. So there's some courtroom drama. Some juror drama. It's like a movie. Ooh. Justice James Williams suspended jury deliberation on December 6, 2007, after he discovered an error in his charge to the jury. Earlier in that day, the jury had submitted a written request to Justin James requesting clarification of his charge, asking, quote, Are we able to say yes, i.e. find Picton guilty if we infer the accused acted indirectly? I'm not sure what that entirely means, but whatever. On December 9th, 2007, the jury returned a verdict that Picton is not guilty on six counts of first-degree murder, but is guilty on six counts of second-degree murder. A second-degree murder conviction carries a punishment of a life sentence with no possibility of parole for a period between 10 and 25 years, and that is to be set by the trial judge. On December 11th, 2007, after reading 18 victim impact statements, British Columbia Supreme Court Judge Justice James Williams sentenced Picton to life with no possibility of parole for 25 years, the maximum punishment for second-degree murder, and equal to the sentence which would have been imposed for a first-degree murder conviction. Mr. Picton's conduct was murderous and repeatedly so. I cannot know the details, but I know this. What happened to the victims was senseless and despicable said Justice Williams, passing his sentence. There were, of course, appeals. First, the Crown, or the prosecution, appealed, saying they wanted to charge and prosecute Picton for his involvement in the other 20 dropped charges. But there was lack of physical evidence, and, well, it would have taken forever. The sentence wouldn't have changed. Everybody knows he did it. So, there's no real need to make it official, is, I guess, what they're trying to say with why they didn't go ahead with it. Save time, money, and family anguish by forcing them to sit through that trial all over again. On January 9th, 2008, lawyers for Picton filed a notice of appeal in the British Columbia Court of Appeal seeking a new trial on six counts of second-degree murder. The lawyer representing Picton on the appeal was Gil McKinnon, who had been a Crown prosecutor in the 70s. 
The notice of appeal enumerated various areas in which the defense alleged that the trial judge erred. The main charge to the jury, the response to the juror's questions amending the jury charge, similar fact evidence, and Picton statements to the police. The British Columbia Court of Appeal issued its decision on January 25th, 2009, but some parts of the decision were not publicly released because the publication still had a ban in effect. The Court of Appeal essentially dismissed the defense appeal by a 2-1 majority. Due to a dissent on point of law, Picton was entitled to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada without first seeking leave to appeal. His notice of appeal was filed in the Supreme Court of Canada on August 29th, 2009. The Court of Appeal allowed the Crown to appeal, finding that the judge erred in excluding some evidence and in severing the 26 counts into one group and 20 counts in one group of six. The order resulting from this finding was stayed so that the conviction on the six counts of second-degree murder would not be set aside. As we discussed a little bit in this episode and quite a bit in the last episode, the police were completely incompetent in their investigation of Picton. Not only did they dismiss these women because they were drug addicts and sex workers, but they just didn't really give a shit about anything that had to do with Picton. He was accused on multiple occasions of having weapons, of torturing and killing women, abducting women, so on and so forth, but nothing ever came of it. So the victim's children filed a lawsuit in May 2013 against the Vancouver Police Department and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and then of course the Crown for failing to protect the victims. They did eventually reach a settlement in March 2014, where each of the children was to be compensated $50,000 Canadian. But there's a hitch. It comes without any admission of liability. So they can just pretty much say, here's 50 grand, shut up, go away, we did nothing wrong. Which pisses me off. I kind of would rather them come out and say, we fucked up, here's some money, because we fucked up. But police will never admit when they fuck up. It is infuriating. In the end, Robert Picton was a despicable human being. And he got away with murder for way too long because of an incompetent police force. Many of whom I hope are no longer solving crimes because I don't think they solved any to begin with. So, that's going to bring us to the end of this episode and our look at Robert Picton. I do hope you enjoy these true crime serial killer investigations because they're very interesting. I don't like glorifying serial killers and I don't think what they've ever done is good in any way, shape, or form. But the study of them why they did what they did. That sort of stuff is very, very interesting. And I know I don't go into super long, detailed descriptions or analysis of the human being itself because I'm not qualified. Of course, I have theories, and I've seen things and read things in my university days, but am I in any way, shape, or form qualified to make analysis on these investigations? Not at all. No, not even close. So I give you the facts. What I find on the internet, what I find in reports, so on and so forth, and you can be the judge in your own little world and try to dissect why Picton killed possibly 26 women, even upwards of 50 as he claimed in a undercover coup, you could say. Anyway, that's going to do it for me this week. If you like what you heard, please feel free to leave a review on Apple iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Any five-star reviews will be read out on the show, so it's a great way to get a shout out. If you don't have iTunes because you're not an Apple user because you're smart, well, that's okay don't worry about it. You can still follow along on social media, on Twitter at HorrorShotsProd, as in production, on Instagram at Ominous Origins Pod, and on Facebook at HorrorShots. 
So, until next time.